Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I read the scripture over this morning, and it reminded me of some other scriptures. Just wanted to make a brief comment on it. In Hebrews 4.12, just part of it says, The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than the sharpest double-edged sword. And when I looked at this, this is right at the point of that sword, I believe. It's from Philippians 2, 1 to 12. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Charlie. Let us pray. Father God, today and every day, may our words be your words. May our thoughts be your thoughts. And may our deeds be those things that you would have us do. Amen. Well, this uh, letter that Paul wrote to the uh, church at Philippi was, was written while he was imprisoned. Now, he was under uh, house arrest, so he wasn't in a, you know, a, a typical prison setting, not in a, a dungeon or anything like that, but rather in a house. And he had many restrictions, but he also had many abilities that he could participate in also. He was able to have visitors. He was able to share with those visitors that came to see him. And he was able to write letters, of course. We know Paul best by the letters that he wrote. And this letter to the church at Philippi was one of those letters. Even in this condition, though, as Paul so frequently did, he expresses joy. And it comes out evidently in our scripture, comes out in the, the whole letter of Philippians. In fact, joy in one form or another is, is mentioned 16 times in this letter to the Philippians. It's referred to as the New Testament letter of joy. Now his purpose in writing this letter was to thank the Philippians. 
He wanted to thank them for the gift that they had sent him while he was imprisoned. But knowing Paul, he was not going to allow this letter to be limited just to a thank you note. He, uh, he has to add some other details. And so he reports on his circumstances. He gives them an update. He encouraged the Philippians to stand strong in their newfound faith and in the faith, face of persecution also. And he also strongly encouraged them to embrace two things, humility and unity. And humility and unity are the, the two of the topics that are in the second chapter of the letter that, that Charlie read for us today. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on today. Now the church at Philippi was a healthy church, a growing church. It was an enthusiastic church. But it was, as most churches are, not without its problems. There were issues present in the Philippian church that had the potential to divide. Uh, in the fourth chapter, we learn that there's a quarrel that has taken place between two women in the church. And this was a situation that was threatening the peace, and it was also so threatening unity. In the third chapter, uh, Paul warns of false teachers and the danger that they can uh, present. False doctrine has the potential to divide and create disunity as well. And in our text for today, Paul describes three causes for disunity, and they're contained in verses 3 and 4. Let's take another look at them. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So the first thing that he says is to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, according to Paul, is one of the causes of disunity. When people work to advance themselves, rather than the cause of Christ, there's disunity. Now history has shown that many truly great leaders were at the start often filled with anything but ambition. You know, they were kind of reluctant leaders, we could say. They were instead filled, filled with an intense feeling of their own inadequacy. But unfortunately, there are those individuals who seek attention for themselves and ignore the common good, the good of the whole, ignore the needs of the whole, and especially ignore the call of Christ. Well, the next thing that is mentioned is vain conceit. And another way of stating this is personal prestige. The Pharisees were the absolute best at cultivating their own prestige, right? They were practiced at it. Their dress, their appearance, their prayers, all spoke of attention to themselves. They got the best seats in the synagogue. They prayed on the busiest street corners in the marketplace. And what did Jesus say about them? They have their reward. They have their reward. He meant that they had the admiration of people. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were seeking. And they had it. But that was it. They did have something else, however, and that was the disdain of God. You know, uh, when I was an elementary principal, it was a lot like being a rock star. I was a pretty popular and important guy. And uh, if I ever wanted to lift, I just walked through the school. 
I would get enthusiastic greetings and handshakes and high fives and hugs. In fact, we had to have a rule at my school that if I ever came into a classroom and instruction was going on, the kids were allowed to wave, but that was it, so that we didn't interrupt instruction. Now, even when I would drive through town, you know, people would, would call out my name and wave. Connie used to call me the mayor. <laughs> Staff members always smiled at me. They always laughed at my jokes. People came for advice and for help. I was responsible for well over $2 million each year in personnel and expenditures. When I needed something to get done, I would tell people what to do, and they did it. Are you getting turned off? <laughs> I would hope. I mean, I hope you're not impressed, because please don't be impressed, because I am nothing without Jesus Christ. Amen. Nothing. The minute, the second, even the second, that I think that what I'm doing glorifies myself, I'm on the wrong path. The wrong path completely. But you know, it's so easy to do, isn't it? To think that who we are and the blessings that we've received have come from our own efforts, our own hard work. Do you recognize this scene? Remember what television show that's from? Yeah, the Waltons. I, I, re I couldn't find it online, but I remember a mealtime prayer, uh, and it's surprising how many prayers of the Waltons you can find online, but I couldn't find the one I was looking for. I remember this mealtime prayer that was uh, said by John Walton, the father, and he expresses thanks for the food, but he makes it very clear that they had to work hard to get put that food on the table, which was true. They really did. But danger creeps in when we begin to think that we're self-made, that we're a self-made man or a self-made woman. That's the path that's going to lead to failure and destruction and eventually is going to lead to division. Instead, we have to realize and be reminded that God has put us where we are for a purpose. And that purpose is to serve Him, to be servants of Him. Yes, he has blessed us immensely, but with those blessings come a tremendous responsibility. Well, the third area that Paul mentions as possibly causing disunity is mentioned in verse 4. And he says that each of you should look not only to your own interests. You know uh, the, who these people are, right? The ones that look to their own interests. When you meet them, they can only talk about what is important to them. And they're really not interested in anything that you have to say. You know, I did this, this, and this, and I know this, and I know that. Me, me, me. And it made me think of a book that I put together a number of years ago called The Very Hungry Mimi. Uh, it was a takeoff on The Very Hungry Caterpillar. You probably have read that book or have heard about it. Um, and it was something that we circulated among the principals at the time as a joke. You see, we had a boss who was the very hungry Mimi. And all she could do was to think about herself. She was very self-centered. So the book contains things like, uh, let me see if I can read this, it's pretty small. The Mimi had everything she could ever need, but she was still hungry. She craved anything and everything, especially attention. 
And so if you know the story of the very hungry caterpillar, the, the caterpillar eats through different things and there are holes in the book. So I actually put holes in this book as well. On Monday she ate through an IBM ThinkPad. Uh, this is another one. On uh, Wednesday she ate through three construction projects. And then still moving forward, on Saturday she ate through one fax machine, one inner office envelope, one ASCD curriculum handbook, a data outlet, and one simulated mahogany executive <coughs> desk. So and it goes on and on. Uh, you might think, well, that's inappropriate for me to do, right? Yep. Especially as a pastor. And it was. It absolutely was. But it was a comic relief. I still send her a Christmas card every year, just so you know. But it was a way of coping at the time with her Mimi-ishness, you know, that self-centeredness, because it was all about her, unfortunately. You know, when we focus on what is only important to us, guess what? We are bound to collide with others. There's going to be conflict. Why? Because they, like most people, are going to focus on what's important to them. And then we have some kind of disconnect, don't we? Division and disunity are bound to occur. Uh, concentration on self always leads to the elimination of others. It really does. And that is not Christ's way. In the beginning of the second chapter, Paul goes on to give us five examples of considerations that should prevent disharmony. And these are the five. He tells us that we should have encouragement, first of all, with being united in Christ. If we're truly in unity with Christ, we simply cannot be in disunity with our fellow person. Next is the power of Christian love that he mentions. It's uh, the love of Christ that has conquered all, which never knows bitterness and seeks nothing other than the betterment of others, the good of others. Christ's love does not mean only loving those who love us, either, by the way, or only loving those who are lovable. It means loving even those whom we do not like, those who are unlovable. Let's face it, Christ expresses love to us, right? And many times we're anything but lovable. The fact that we share in the Holy Spirit should also keep us from disunity. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that binds us to God and also person to person. And one of the evidences of the Spirit is that unity is found among us because it's a supernatural thing for that unity to be in place. The fourth consideration uh, is that we should, that should keep us united is human tenderness and compassion. We are created to help each other, to uplift each other, to love one another. And finally, Paul uh, puts a rather personal touch, personal consideration in the fifth one. He says, make my joy complete. In other words, make my day. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, by trying to achieve that oneness of mind. And Paul indicates that he can't be truly happy as long as he knows that there's any smattering or smidgen of discord or disunity in the church that is so dear to him. And notice as he says this, he doesn't threaten, he doesn't criticize or chastise, but rather he appeals with that same love that he's calling us to have for one another. 
Now, I remember times when I was threatened by my father. One of those uh, sayings that comes to mind is, if you kids don't stop it, I'm going to come in there swinging. You know, I remember my dad saying that. I remember the first time I said that to my kids, and I thought, where did that come from? <laughs> I remember times when I was punished, and yes, I even remember times when I was spanked. But there were two kinds of times that I remember even more vividly. You know what those times were? When my dad was proud of me and when he was disappointed in me. Those seem to cut more to the bone, you know, cut to the quick more. Um, we need to remember also that our approval and our disapproval are, are two of the strongest things that we can use with our own children and grandchildren as long as we remember to express them in love. Also with fellow Christians as well, again with the idea of using and expressing them in love. Well, Paul tells us to give it up, to give up our selfish ambition, to give up our vain conceit or our personal prestige, to give up our own interests. And in two words, what he's really telling us to do is deny ourselves, to deny ourselves. Now, all of this is well and good. Yes, we should think less of ourselves and more of others. And it's certainly a, a strong and important message from Paul. But now, he's not content to just leave it with this, you see, because now he, he ups the ante a little bit, as it were, and increases the pressure significantly. He says, your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, he's holding a measuring stick to us that is, we're just going to fall short, right? And he, I think he understands that. We can never hope to fully live up to the example that we find in Christ Jesus. So do we give up? No. No. Look at 1 Peter, uh, the second chapter, verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You know, now think about the example that he gave to us. Look at verses 6 and 7 who being in the very nature be in being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness well, what does verse 6 mean before he came to this earth jesus was in very nature god he was equal to God. He was God. Some translations say that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. In other words, he wasn't supposed to cling to that divinity, uh, he, not to hang on to that. And instead, what did he do? He willingly gave it up. The NIV version that Charlie read for us that's on the screen says that uh, his divinity wasn't something to be used to his own advantage. You know, and, and, and the thing is, you know, really think about that. Really consider that. Here he is, the creator of the universe, the ruler of all mankind, and he made himself nothing. Nothing. 
He became this nondescript little baby of an unknown teenager in a tiny village in a remote corner of the globe. A baby, just like the millions of babies before him and since him. A baby that could do nothing. Do nothing. He went from being totally omnipotent to being totally dependent on others. He had to depend on others to be fed, to be changed, to be kept warm, to be protected. You know, how fragile he made himself. How fragile. Imagine the author and the finisher of all creation having to learn how to walk and talk. <laughs> we can't really understand that or even fathom that. You know, this is, is rather a crude example but it would be almost like Bill Gates, you know, the multi-billionaire creator and owner of Microsoft saying, you know, I'd like a change. I really like to change things. I want to give up my position. I want to give up my power, all my wealth. You people take over for me. What I really want to do is I want to work scrubbing the floors of our office buildings. And I just want to be paid what anybody in that position would be paid. Like that's going to happen, right? <laughs> but that's in essence what Christ did, and more, and more. He gave it up. He became nothing. He became a baby, just like all the others. But there was a difference, you see. He became this baby, this baby who created himself. <laughs> this baby came not to be served, but to serve taking on the very nature of a servant, of a slave. And this baby would grow up being made in human likeness. This baby would not be interested in what this world had for him. He was not looking for recognition. He was not looking for power, not looking for prestige or popularity. He would not be interested in accumulating worldly possessions or wealth. No, he would not be interested in making a living, but he came instead to make life worth living. And how did he do it? He humbled himself. Humbled himself. He became obedient. And just how obedient did he become? Pretty darn obedient. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. He was crucified on a tree that he created. Think about it. And Paul says that this same attitude should be ours. There's a standard for us to live up to. There's a standard for us to be held accountable to. Let's look at verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Therefore, it means for that reason. For what reason? You know, why did God exalt Christ? It was because of his obedience. That's how he glorified himself and how he glorified God. Now, I've said this before, but we would rather do without obedience. We can love and we can honor, but to obey, you know, well, that's, as I said a couple weeks ago, you know, that word's been taken out of a lot of marriage vows. And we'd like to just exit out. Pretty strong. We don't like being told what to do. We'd rather make up our own minds, do our own thing, make our own choices, make our own decisions. And this verse certainly underscores the importance of obedience. But Jesus is exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name 
because of his obedience. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. If the early church, it probably was their first creed. You know, those four words, Jesus Christ is Lord. To be a Christian was to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And through the years, people have tried to define more closely what that means. They've debated and argued, calling each other heretics and sometimes even fools. But it's still true. Because if a person can say, for me, Jesus Christ is Lord, he or she is a Christian. By saying that, we communicate that for us, Jesus Christ is unique and that we're prepared to give him, him an obedience that we're prepared not to bestow upon anyone else. We may not be able to put into words always who Jesus was and is. It's difficult sometimes. But as long as we have this amazing and wondering love in our hearts, as long as we're serious about our obedience, then we're Christians. We're his followers. We also must note that these verses say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's God designed that all people, all people will worship him and serve Jesus Christ as Lord and ultimately all will. But it'll be within two different groups, you see. Those who have been faithful and who are doing so willingly and those who have not known him but on that day, that last day, will realize too late that he is who he said he is. And they too will bow down. And they too will confess him as Lord. But for them he will not be their Lord, he will be their judge. Yes, he gave it up. All that he had. And he gave it up for us. He paid the ultimate price the final sacrifice so that we could have the type of life that he lives. He didn't grasp, he didn't cling, or he didn't hang on. He let go willingly with a love that is deeper than any other. What is it that you cling to? Think about that for a minute. What are you grasping for? Is it power? Is it prestige? Is it ambition? Interests? Self? Christ calls us out of love and in obedience to give it up, to exchange it, as it were, to trade it in, really, for something infinitely better. There's no comparison with what the world has to offer, with what he has to offer. You know, as we sang for our prayer chorus this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, help us, we pray, to give it up. Help us to put all other things, all other cares, all other concerns aside and to bow down before you and confess with our lips that your Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord. 
Father, give us the conviction to humble ourselves as he did and the strength to obey as he did so that we might be in your will as he was. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Receive the benediction. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. May the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Depart in peace. Amen. Amen. Amen.